pray. Father, we are grateful this morning that by your good grace, uh, we are capable of opening your word, reading it, understanding it, preaching it, teaching it, learning it, not just so we have an academic understanding of your word or your truth that we can say to other people, not just so that we can fulfill a duty that you require of us to just be at church, but so that your word would speak to our hearts and would transformed by the power of your spirit who we are that you would scale away sin and build in us and produce in us and reveal through us the pure and perfect righteousness of christ that's our aim lord to be like jesus pray that as we see the suffering of christ in this text that we would see who we are without him and who we are with him and it would produce joy praise, the joy and the praise that is worthy of you and that is due to you. Thank you and pray that your spirit would work. We trust you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So today we reach the third stanza in Isaiah's song. The next two stanzas we will do together in one sermon. Well, I'm saying that now, but then sometimes I write my sermons and I'm like, oh, that's really long. I should just make it two. So Right now, the plan is next week is the end of the song, the fourth and fifth stanza. Um, we'll see how that goes. Uh, but today, we reach the top. We reach the pinnacle of Christ's suffering. This third stanza is the center of this song. It is, the, it, it is in the center of the song because it is the climax of the song. It is the high point. It is the purpose of Isaiah's song. We tend to put, in our music, the climax at the end of the songs. We tend to see that in like entertainment and movies as well, and another form of entertainment being music that happens often as well. When Isaiah writes this song, he puts the heartbeat of the, the song, the climax, the point, the purpose, right in the middle. It seems strange that we would find death to be a climax because that's what this text is all about, death. But in the gospel, it is just that. God's incredible expression of love for those whom he has chosen is shown in no greater way than the sacrifice of his son. Like we see that even in the song, in the Christian songs we write, and, and, and for years, like hymns as well. You've got this build up that climaxes at the resurrection of Christ. You know, these songs that, like, the first verse is like, ah, we're sinners. The second verse is like, but then Jesus died for your sin. And then the third verse is like, it kind of explodes instrumentally and musically. And it's like, oh, buddy, rose. And then, like, I think of the song in Christ Alone. That's kind of how that song builds. Nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with that at all. It's just, in the gospel, the climax is the death. Like, think about Old Testament sacrifices. Did the sacrifice of an animal, according to God's law, atone for the sin of the people? Yes. I mean, temporarily, it's, not, it's nothing like the sacrifice of Christ, but it did do the atoning work that God 
ordained it to do for the time that he ordained it to do it. And so there was no resurrection of the animals that were slain as a form of atonement. And so their sins aren't, quote-unquote, covered by a resurrection. Their sins are covered by death. It's the substitution, it's the atonement that has the power. And if you're wondering, well, then what's the point of the resurrection? We'll get there next week because that's what Isaiah finishes the song with, and it's awesome and it's powerful. We'll get to see what does the resurrection mean to the gospel, what does it mean to God, and what does it mean to you? And obviously you'd say, well, it means I get eternal life. Well, yeah, we know that, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but what does it mean to you now, today? And we'll see that later in the song, not today. But his death is the pinnacle. It's the point, because in it, our sins are forgiven. His death may be to us a gruesome reality, but in that gruesome display of death and suffering, we do not see failure. We do not see the end. We see purchase. We see redemption. We see restoration. We see power and love and grace and mercy, and we see beauty in the gruesomeness of his suffering. 16th century Puritan Richard Sibbs writes, Christ was never more lovely to his church than when he was most deformed for his church. What else could be as beautiful as sacrifice? What else could be as glorious as one dying for others? And Jesus said this himself in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. We are his friends, his brothers and sisters, his beloved, his church, his, his bride, his body, his love. And there is no more profound expression of love than for the son to hang on a cross that we earned. Like we put him there and yet... He endures it, according to Hebrews 12, with joy, knowing, and the reason he has joy is because he knows that the result will be his glory and his joy in the presence of his Father for enduring the suffering that he's supposed to endure, and it becomes to us our glory and our joy as well. And that is part of the joy of Christ. It is part of the joy that enables Christ to endure suffering is because he knows he's winning his bride. Married men, what would you do for your wife? And we could ask you a bunch of, would you do this or would you do that? The, the hardest question is, would you die for her? Would you die for your wife? Like, your answer should be yes. <laughs> and I think every husband in here would be like, yes, absolutely, because I'm supposed to, and I know I'm supposed to, but the reality is if that came down to an actual scenario, that's hard to do. It's hard to do, but we're supposed to. And the reason you think you'd say yes, and, and I believe many of you would say yes, and I believe I would say yes, and I believe I would die for my wife, I say that standing here in front of you preaching the Bible. <laughs> I have no idea what that really feels like, and I say it, but I don't know how hard that is to do. But just imagine how much you have to love somebody to die for them. And then Paul talks about, in Romans, well, 
Anybody would die for a good person. That's not hard, right? And you think of your spouse as a good person. That's why you're married to them. You love them. That's, that's easy to die for your bride. Jesus didn't die for his bride. He died for people who hate him. Because then Paul goes on to say in Romans, it's much harder to die for someone that doesn't love you. For an enemy. That's love. To love someone who doesn't love you back. And that's what Christ did. Love people who don't love him. He didn't die for his bride. Of course you'd die for your wife. She loves you, you love her. You've got kids, you know, family, whatever. You're like invested in each other. That's a lot easier to die. Would you, if you approached her to marry her, or you wanted to marry her, and you found out she doesn't like you at all, <laughs> she's like, I don't want to be with that guy for any point in my life. Get out of my face, dude. Would you still die for her? Because Christ, we hated Christ way more than that woman didn't like you. <laughs> and yet he died. That's love. And he died because we put him there. That's on us. And that's incredible. That's incredible. The guy would choose in his grace to love those whose sins are unfairly put upon his perfect son. And that is a truth and a love and a mercy that should stop any person in their tracks. All thoughts, all ideas, all truths, all emotions, all of reality, everything you are and will be and have been and all that is and will come to be and all that ever has been, all things need to be filtered through this amazing grace and this unimaginable love of God that was proven at Calvary. That is our opportunity as believers to take every thought, every experience, every sin, every act of righteousness, every obedience, everything good and everything evil and everything in our life, every entertainment, every possession, every person in our life, every family member, everything you read, everything you watch, everything you do at work, every relationship, all things, everything, and always at all times need to be filtered through the gospel. If it's not then what's the point? So Isaiah begins the third stanza in verse 4. And he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is such a thorough expression of the weightiness of our sin. He bore he carried, what? Our griefs and our sorrows. Do you see what sin does? Do you see the impact and effects of our sin? Sin is so disgusting and so rancidly putrid to God that it produces grief and sorrow for God. And the offense of sin against a holy God requires that grief and sorrow which are the product of sin, and that sin itself be dealt with, and not in the way that parents deal with their child's sin. 
And not even in the way that the government deals with a serial killer or murderer. It's much worse than that. It's not a slap on the wrist. It's not a timeout. It's not a spanking. It's not a life sentence. It's not even capital punishment. It's way worse. I was watching Hamilton last night with my wife, and they had a little phrase in there that I believe is totally true. Unless you're Jesus. Dying is easy. Living is hard. It's easy to be like, oh, Lord, just kill me. (laughs) Like, let me escape the hard thing. Dying's easy. Capital punishment, that's easy. Living a life of faithfulness, enduring hard things in life to follow and obey Christ, that's hard. Because there are plenty of people in in the history of the world who have endured incredible incredibly difficult, hard sufferings for the gospel and would have loved to have rather just be dead. Paul said it himself in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9. We despise of life itself. Their suffering was so hard, he said, we despise of life itself. He said, but that was to produce something that I could use, dependence on God, to endure this life. So life is hard. Capital punishment, that's easy. And the payment for grief and sorrow and sin is thousands of years of pent-up offenses. Thousands of years of millions, actually, no, thousands of years of billions of sinners sinning quadrillions of sins in a lifetime. That number of sins that God has endured from every living individual over that extent of time and in the future still to him is, you know, nothing because he doesn't exist in time. So all the sins of all humanity throughout all of time is a number that is unfathomably large. So thousands of years of pent-up offenses, ones that have happened, that are happening, and that will happen, gathered up, into one full, explosive revelation of God's fury and his wrath. It is God's greatest fury, his greatest wrath, his greatest anger, his righteous and justified hatred for sin, and his justified hatred for you. Because Psalm says that he hates the sinner. That he unleashes upon the one who did nothing wrong. Who lived every second of his life in perfect obedience to his father. That's love. There's no better expression of love. How much must he love you? How great must his grace be? How rich is his mercy that he would strike and smite and afflict the perfect one, the only one who is fully justified in order to justify you. In verse 3, 
The second stanza, we esteemed him not. In verse 4, now we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There is this revelation in us, in our minds, and in our hearts, and in our eyes, where we suddenly realize that the suffering servant that we thought nothing of has suddenly become to us a beautiful picture of God's grace. But here's the thing. It doesn't say that in verse 4. Verse 4 doesn't say, oh, he's so beautiful looking and wonderful and great. And, and we all beheld his glory and we're like, oh, that's not what verse 4 says. It says we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Only in the most severe suffering are our eyes opened. And our hearts melted and our minds freed to see him for who he truly is. Only when God strikes him, only when God smites him, and only when God afflicts him can we see that this ordinary man, remember last we talked about how this idea of him just this nothing to look at doesn't mean he was ugly, it just means he's just an ordinary first century Jew. No, no glory to be beheld in this ordinary man. But when God strikes him and smites him and afflicts him, we see this ordinary man become so much more. Only then can we go from us not esteeming him to esteeming him in some sense. There's evidence of this in the Bible, too, because in Luke 23, 47, the moment Jesus breathes his last breath, the centurion says, certainly this man was innocent. What did it take for the centurion to see Christ for who he truly is? It took the completion of his suffering. He had to be the most mangled, the most destroyed, the most gruesomely ugly, worse display of Christ imaginable. He had to be the lamb completely slaughtered. And once he was, the centurion went, oh, he is. Only in God's unleashed wrath upon his son can we perceive that we were always wrong about him. And when we finally see him, what do we see? Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, I know people in my life who say things like, um, I'm sick, or I have cancer, or I have this or that, and you know, whether it's a momentary illness or a like a terminal illness or something severe, something less severe. I've heard people say, well, the Bible says that in his stripes I'm healed, so I believe that I will be physically healed. This is not a reference to your physical healing in this lifetime. His stripes is the blood that pours out of his body in payment for your sins. That's the healing, eternal life. So if you hear anyone talk about that, just putting that out there for you to have a little biblical sense and knowledge this is a reference to paying for your sins, not paying for you for a promise that God does not promise in Scripture that we would be healed. So, what do we see in verse 5? Wounded for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, the chastisement is on him, and it brought us peace, and with his stripes we 
were healed. But we see, we see a perfect, spotless lamb, the only one who did what was right, bearing a vengeance from his father that would have taken an eternity for us to suffer. Therefore, he takes the wounding for us. He is crushed for us. He is chastised for us. Only when we see the perfect lamb as a slain lamb can we truly see who he really is and what he's done and and really see how much God loves you. It's the death of Christ that shows God's love. And like, think about that reality. Think about, I mean, there are so many days and so many times in my life where I have had hard times, whether they were self-inflicted or others inflicted, it's hard. Life can be hard. You know that. Emotional hardness, anxiety, frustrating times, difficult people, difficult scenarios, hard situations, tough conversations. Maybe you have to work a lot or struggles in your marriage or whatever. You think of the things when, when times are really hard and there are days where I just go, I just can't wait to go to heaven. <laughs> like, I just can't wait till this is all over. Like I was saying earlier, it's just easy to die. Lord, just take me home and this will all be over and I can just be in your perfect joy with no sin and I don't have to struggle. No more of these hard things. I just want the hard things to be over. I just want life to be a little easier. You know, and I know that's not what God has willed for me in that moment, but it's like you have this. And, and to be honest, that's kind of a complaint, which isn't okay. But the heart of that, really what that is coming from is hope in the truth of the gospel that my life eternally is secured in Christ. And when I think about those moments, when I think to myself, man, at least I have eternal life. I mean, yeah, life's hard. Man, this situation's going to be difficult. Oh, I don't want to go through this day. I don't want to say this thing. I don't want to do this thing. I don't want to have to go through this. Oh, this hurts too much. Or, or this is too hard. Whenever life's just like, ah, I just think, man, at least I get to go to heaven. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, God's not going to take me from this, and I'm going to have to endure this. But at the end of the day, what's the big deal? Like, I get to go to heaven. And when I go to heaven, these problems won't even exist. Who cares? So just endure it because I'm commanded to. And I can because I have Christ in me. This is actually not that bad. Like, literally, these hard things in my life, that's my hell. That's hell for me. That's the worst it gets. So I think about that in my own life. I hope that's an encouraging thought for you. But here's where I'm going with that. Unbelievers can't say that. They have no hope. They have no hope. And they may reject the gospel today, and they may reject you when you share the gospel with them today. But let's think about like Luke 16, 19 through 31. You can turn there, Luke 16, 19 through 31. Because an unbeliever, you can share the gospel with an unbeliever, and you can tell an unbeliever what I just told you. Hey, man, no matter how hard life is, I've got this great hope, this belief, and this faith of something that I'm absolutely sure of, which is that at the end of the day and at the end of this life, I have Christ and I will spend eternity in God's perfect presence of joy. I have nothing to worry about. This life is as hard as it gets. You say that to an unbeliever, and they go, and they scoff. Right? I mean, if they don't believe, you think, well, I shared it with them. Here's the reality of what happens. And this is, I consider from Jesus, a light version of hell. Listen to what happens. Jesus is telling a story. There was a rich man, verse 19, sorry, Luke 16, 19. 
There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a, uh, laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So you see the difference between Lazarus and the rich man. The poor man died and was carried away by the, or carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. That's a drop of water. Have you ever ran a marathon? I ran a half marathon once in hopes that I'd run a full marathon once. And then after I ran the half marathon, I was like, that's good enough. <laughs> uh, but I ran a half marathon, and when I got done, do you think a drip of water from the end of my finger was sufficient? No. And that was not hell. <laughs> not even close. And he says, I'm sorry, where was I? Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, listen to the attitude of the rich man, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So what do we find there? That the truth about misery loves company is not true in hell. Because misery is a complete failure of a word to describe hell. It's impossible to describe hell as miserable. It is an insufficient word. In hell, misery does not love company. Misery cannot stand or bear the fact that others would join because it's that terrible. And he said... But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear then. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Sound familiar? If someone goes to them from the dead, oh, if Christ was just resurrected, then maybe they would repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There is so much there I'd love to unpack. So much. But I want you to just hear this from it. The unbelievers that you know in your life, when you share the gospel with them and they don't want it, just remember they're going to be singing a different tune in hell. And they're going to be wishing that you would have begged them to believe, that you would have hounded them to believe. And we are too concerned with our egos about what it makes us look like. And we're too proud to be humbled and rejected. And we're too arrogant to let people tell us we're wrong when we know that we're right and they need to believe the truth. We have no convictions 
and no strength because we don't walk in the power of Christ that comes from the word because we don't spend time in the word and we're not filled with the spirit because we don't commune with God regularly and constantly and so we're not spirit filled. We don't have the mind of Christ speaking through us to tell that person what they need to hear when we preach the gospel to them and they're going to die and spend eternity in hell and they're going to be screaming, why didn't you warn me? And you're going to be like, I did. And you're like, what? they're going to be like, why didn't you drag me to heaven? Just do something else. Why didn't you just punch me in the face? Get my attention. Do something drastic. This is way worse. You couldn't just endure a little bit of hard things in your earthly life than you even knew you were going to get eternal life. You couldn't endure a little bit of criticism from me just to convince me to believe. They are going to sing a different tune in hell. They need to see the perfect lamb slain. They need to know it. They need to see him. And they need to know that they're the ones who put him there. They have to see that first. No one can see the lamb as perfect and white and stainless unless they have first peered into the visual scene of his perfectly white righteousness stained in his innocent blood. God did not put, God did not put our sin into Jesus. God did not make Christ a sinner. What God did is he poured out his wrath for sin onto him. Now when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, he does not mean that Jesus is suddenly a sinner for us to bear our deserved wrath. What Paul means is that Jesus became that which we deserve to be, the object of God's wrath produced by our sin nature. And if you're thinking to yourself, then why, if he doesn't become a sinner, why does the Father turn his face away from him? And why does he say, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus is doing is he's invoking Psalm 92 as the Jews stand around and laugh at Jesus dying on a cross. They know all the Psalms. They know Psalm 22. They know what Psalm 22 says. Go to Psalm 22. When Jesus says that, those words, my, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is saying the first verse of Psalm 22, invoking the entirety of the verse, which those Jews, those Christ haters, know. And what we find in this text is some beautiful truths that Jesus is essentially communicating in Psalm 22, about himself on the cross. So let's read verse 1, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and what? Despised by the people. Like Isaiah says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads 
He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him as they mock him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water. So what we see right here is some real cross-centeredness. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint, but not broken. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. His heart literally died on the cross. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. He asked because he was thirsty. You lay me in the dust of death. <laughs> For dogs encompass me. Dogs are encompassing Christ on the cross. And this is the psalm that he calls out. A company of evildoers encircles me and they have pierced my hands and my feet. Sound familiar? I count all my bones. Not one of them was broken, even though that was normal. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. This is Calvary. Now listen. It sounds like, Lord, where are you? Oh, Jesus must be a sinner now. He's bearing our sin, but he is not a sinner. And he says in verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. I would go on, but this would take forever. So, we see Christ invoking the reality that his Father is still the one in whom he trusts. The idea of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, doesn't mean I have become a sinner. It means the Father looks at the Son and goes, there is a problem in our relationship right now and I have to put this suffering on you. So, Jesus doesn't become a sinner. He becomes a sin bearer. A sin bearer and a wrath receiver. Why? Because of us. Because of our sin. Because we wanted nothing to do with God we wanted nothing to do with the servant. We esteemed him not until we had to esteem him as stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, crushed, and chastised. So only in his suffering can we perceive that this is not fair. But who are we to complain? Who are we to say to God, why would you strike him who did no wrong? For if we got fairness, because that's not fair, why would you do that to your son? Why would you do that to Jesus? That's not fair. He doesn't deserve it. If we got fairness, we know what we get, right? We would be the ones that God strikes, smites, afflicts, wounds, crushes, and chastises, and we would not recover from that. And though we would deserve it, it was not God's will or his plan or his purpose because then God would not get to show the unfathomability of his grace and the unsearchableness of his mercy and the unimaginable nature of his love. He had to crush the Son, not with reluctance, but with the fullness of his wrath and his anger and his justice and his vengeance on sin and with 
purpose. It was the only way. It was the only way it would work. There is no other way to show the greatness of his love for you. Like I shared last week, that quote that says, it almost looks as if God loves you more than his son. Obviously not. But we become Christ. We become like Christ. God looks at us in the whiteness and purity of the righteousness of Jesus, and we are on equal ground with Christ, the perfect one. That's nuts. We don't deserve that. That's grace. That's love. Anything less than crushing the perfect lamb would only diminish how deep and wide his love is for you. His love needs to be shown as more powerful and more meaningful than just any sacrifice. Which is why, if you die in your sin, you suffer for eternity. Because anything short of eternity is insufficient. That's how severe your offensive sinful nature is to God. So any sacrifice other than Christ is so insufficient that it must continue eternally. Because their eternity means no sufficiency. Right? Eternal suffering means that suffering will never be sufficiently paid for. So it goes on forever. So anything other than Christ is just eternal suffering. But in Christ and in Christ alone is shown the greatest sacrifice so that his love would never be questioned as the greatest love. There is no person, no thing, no animal. There is nothing that deserves God's wrath less than Jesus. So for love to be revealed is more than all that we can think or imagine as the greatest thing, the greatest person, the greatest God, the great God, our Lord, our Savior, God, our Master, Jesus must be sacrificed. Only he will do. There is no other. And in his suffering, we finally see him for who he is. And we finally see ourselves for who we truly are. The ones whose choices and whose nature and whose hatred for God and love for sin and evil has hung that perfect sacrifice on a tree. When Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, that he came not to be served but to serve, this is what he was talking about. He didn't come to be an earthly king in that lifetime. He came to serve or to be a servant. And what is the servant's role? To suffer. That's what he means. I didn't come to be a king and be served. I came to be a servant and suffer. And thus he fulfills Isaiah's song. This third stanza in the song is the central stanza because in it is the true nature of God and the true nature of Christ and our true nature is revealed most profoundly. God is seen as a perfect judge. Christ is seen as a perfect sacrifice. And we are seen as holy and completely imperfect. Disgusting, actually. Like putrid, foul, contaminated, rancid, rotting sinners who are not just running toward death with all our energy, but we are simply and completely dead. There is nothing within us that desires or wants the servant or his father, and our only escape is the unfair death and sacrifice of the servant. Why? Verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. How many of us? All of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Now, this stanza is so central because in it, this idea of substitution is so prominent, and the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is essential. I read a, I have a book in my office. I've shown it to Christian the other day, and we were trying to figure it out. It's written by a guy. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's called The Nonviolent Atonement. It's this doctrinal argument against the violence of the atonement, the substitutionary atonement of Christ that required his death, and a violent one at that. And this guy argues in this book that Jesus didn't have to die to, sub, to be a substitute for your sins. He could have substituted it any other way. The violence of Jesus on the cross from the Father, he calls it cosmic child abuse. Like, <laughs> clearly, I mean, that's heresy. Straight up heresy, right? Like, we don't believe that. We believe that the Son, I mean, how can you read Isaiah 53? And not believe that God did this. That this was his plan. This was always the plan. When we get to the next two stanzas, you're going to see this was all God's plan. God says in Isaiah 53, I did this. So we find the central idea of substitutionary atonement. It's so prominent and it's so mandatory. So he was crushed for our what? Our iniquities. That means our sin. That, that Lord has laid, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why? Because we have all gone astray. We have turned to our own way. Our own way. Now keep that, our own way, in your mind just for a second because I'm going to get to that in a minute. Our own way, verse 6. Who does this? He says in verse 6. Everyone! And God is totally justified in killing us all, we simply cannot genuinely contemplate and understand or perceive the depths of God's grace. It is just too deep and too rich and too good and too wonderful and too powerful and too magnificent and too amazing. And this is why when I watch Christians live their lives as nominal Christians, when I live my life as a nominal Christian, every time I sin, I'm like, what are you doing, Mark? Do you feel that way? You should. I mean, you know, don't beat yourself up. Because that, ah, that angst over sin, that like is as a holy and justified and it is righteous to be like, what is wrong with me? Because that is meant to lead you to his grace where you say, but thanks be to God who paid for my sin. And by his grace I am covered and by his grace I will stand again and I will pursue righteousness. I will not fail that sin again. And then we do. <laughs> then we do. And by his grace, we continue. But I just can't imagine the Christian life being so nominal. I mean, like, like just barely getting by without any desire for Jesus, without any passion for the gospel, without any pursuit of Christ. I just think, how could you say you're a Christian? Have you not heard of his grace? Do you not know how wicked you are? Especially for people who claim to be Christians. They know the gospel and they kind of believe it or they believe in it, but they don't really live it at all. And I'm like, that's not the Christian life described in scripture. How can you say you're a Christian and you're not in the word and you're not in prayer and you don't give and you don't serve and you don't go to church, you're not a part of the body, you don't practice all the commands and I get it, we're not perfect and we fail at them all the time and things like that, but like, the reality is that just so many people who's like, I'm a Christian. You look up statistics in America. How many Christians are in America? It's like 80%. I'm like, no way. No way. Not even close. Especially if Jesus is true. 
Because he said, many are called, but few are chosen. I really think there's going to be that day. I mean, Jesus talks about that, you know, there will be many on the last day who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did you not preach in our streets? We, we've, and he's going to be like, I don't know you. Like that, that's just a reality. And I look at people who say that they're Christians and live nothing about the Christian life. And I'm just like, those are the hardest people to convince to believe the gospel because they already think they believe the gospel. So you can't just tell them Jesus died for their sins. They'll be like, I know, I'm a Christian. So the only thing you can really say is to that person, then why don't you live like it? But we would never say that. We would never say that because that sounds judgmental. And the world tells us, you, don't judge me. You can't judge me. Jesus says, judge rightly. We can judge. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the, that the spiritual person, the believer, ha, can judge anyone and has discernment to judge. What we can't do is condemn people. You're going to hell. That's condemnation. What we can do is judge their lives and say, and, and, and obviously, Peter commands us to do it in a loving and gentle way. So I don't think you should walk around being like, you're not a Christian. Like, that's not what I'm advocating for. I'm talking about getting involved in people's lives who say that they're believers and speaking truth in their life in a loving and gracious and kind way, but truthful and honest and convicting. That's what Christians or people who say that they're Christians but don't live it need. I just, we deserve nothing from him. So I'm watching people like live their lives like he's nothing and yet he gave you everything. I just, it just blows my mind. I don't get it. And then I say that from the pulpit about other people and I just sit here and think about my own life and I'm like, I don't think I get it. Because that's, this is hard for me too. Like I, I get, I get it. I don't get it, but I get it. I want to serve Jesus with everything I have and I still sin. We deserve nothing from him and yet we get his grace and his mercy and his love in Christ and, and we thank him and then we just go back to meandering throughout our life as if nothing changed. That's not the gospel. The gospel wrecks you. The love of God ruins you. The power of the gospel transforms you. If you are a believer and your life isn't totally transformed and every nook and cranny of your life doesn't permeate every corner of your life, then that means you do not wake up every morning and mentally and emotionally and theologically travel to Calvary to kneel at the cross and look up at the destroyed Savior who hangs for your sins. We must not forget that it was our sins that put him there. We must remember that it was us whom he replaced. And that it is for us. Or it is, I'm sorry, it is us for whom he substituted. And it is us, and it is our sin for which he was crushed. And it's a gruesome visual of his death. But it is a necessary one that we bow before Christ on the cross daily to remember who we are without him and to remember what it took to pay for our sins and what this life in Christ cost him so that we would be humbled by God's incredible love and grace and mercy. It's not to dwell on sin, it's to dwell on the cross. It's to dwell on the Savior, it's to dwell on Christ. We need a cleansing. 
church. The church universally needs a cleansing. We need a purifying of the church. I think that I think that the American church is skewed and twisted and confused because, and I don't mean all churches, obviously. There's great churches and lots of them. Um, is a total lack of understanding of doctrine. I think someone told me this week, I think it was Christian, maybe I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, said we're kind of like back at that point like before the Reformation where like nobody knew anything. Like we're back at that stage already. Like no one reads their Bibles, no one understands doctrine, everyone just makes up whatever they want and everybody believes it. When I'm on social media and I see like Christians come up and they'll post some like Christian thing from scripture and this one girl was like, oh, the words when God says I am, I am means to speak into being. So every time you say like I am sick, you make yourself sick and then there's some guy watching the video like, yeah, that. And I'm like, that's garbage and you're believing it and then you're spreading it to other people and people watch that stuff and they believe it. It's just a small microcosm of the reality of the church that people just make up whatever they want, believe whatever they want, and they have maybe one scripture that they misunderstand to make their points or no scripture. Or they heard it when they were five and they still believe it because they haven't grown. You know, that kind of stuff. Like, and because of that, the American church is just kind of mangled. And I say American church kind of loosely. I'm not suggesting that, but we got it figured out here at Grace Church. Like, I'm just saying that's my perception of the American church. And that's negative. That's the negative side. I don't want to leave you with negativity about the church. What I want to leave you with is the answer. And the answer is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like, I, there are doctrinal problems in the church that need to be fixed, whether it's this church or another church or all the churches in America or whatever. We all need to grow in doctrine. We need to fix the doctrinal problems and the false beliefs that we have so that we can live righteous and holy lives. But that only comes if everything we do and believe is a pursuit of Christ and is filtered through the cross of Christ. Like this Isaiah 53 is, is the filter by which everything the church does gets filtered through. You want to start a new ministry? Does it exalt the, the suffering servant who was risen from the dead? Does it magnify the cross? If not, it's a waste of time. Does it magnify the Christ on the cross? If it's not, it's a waste of time. Is what you do magnify Christ and Him crucified? If not, it's a waste of time. So, I think the church, this one included, needs cleansing. I think it needs purifying. And it starts, we need to start washing our life in the soap of the gospel. And that's really what it comes down to. There should be no end to our praise. There should be no end to our joy in him. You should be the happiest people in this stinking universe. You should be filled with joy. You should be bursting with joy. You should be singing songs of praise while you're at work all day long so all your coworkers wonder what is wrong with you and you say, I have the joy of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins bursting out of me and I can't contain it anymore. And if you don't like it, 
Too bad. I mean, you need to be wise at work. But like, <laughs> like if you work in a quiet office and you're like, Jesus, people are going to be like, can you stop? I need to work. Okay, so my point though, I think, I hope is clear that like we just, we, we don't live lives that are so completely sold out for Christ because we don't practice being sold out for Christ in our quiet time, in our alone time, in our spare time. We choose other things. We choose other things. And they may not even be a bad thing. Like they could be wonderful things like spending time with your spouse or with your children or playing a family game or eating dinner together and stuff like that. Like those aren't bad things. Is it sin to go home and watch football today? No, it's not sin, inherently sin. Can you watch football in sin? Yes. Can you watch football in righteousness? Yes, there's a difference. My point is we don't filter those kinds of things through the gospel because we're never thinking about the gospel because we don't intentionally make time to sit at the feet of the cross and look up at the suffering servant, bloody and bruised and ripped to shreds and dead for your sins. And until we get there, we, we need to go there first before God can lift us up and carry us to the empty tomb. So we're in misery as we watch the suffering servant die for our sins. We're like, I am, I did this? And it's at that moment, that brokenness, that God lifts you up and takes you to the empty tomb and goes, yeah, but. And we go, oh, sweet! I get Christ and him resurrected and his righteousness and so like, all the church problems I'm talking about and all the putrid, hard, disgusting reality of your sin that I'm talking about that brings you to your knees and should make you feel miserable is all crushed and redeemed in Christ's resurrection. Amen. And we get to stand in glory with him. Like That's how we should live our lives. And that should be such a prominent reality in your life that that is everything to you. Everything. Whether you decide where am I going to eat for lunch or what are we going to do tomorrow and what do you want to go on vacation and what are we going to do with our money and how are we going to spend our free time and da 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 could go on and on. What job should I have? What vehicle should I buy? Is the, are those questions filtered through the gospel? What car am I going to buy? Well, which one's going to honor Jesus the most? Which one is going to exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ? The big one because I can drive people around in it. Good, that's my decision. The small one, because I'm broke, and that's exactly all I can afford, you know? It's like, good, that honors Christ too. Whatever. I don't know what the choice is, but you need to start taking everything in your life, every thought, every idea, every action, everything, and just realize, like, you have this filter in front of you called the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by, through, which every, uh, through which everything should go. And we just don't live that way. Which is why we sort of start like kind of veering into just nominal Christian lives. I go to church every Sunday. You know, I do like a verse of the day. Not every day, but most days, like a verse of the day. And I, you know, I'm like, oh, Lord, help me today. Amen. Like, that is just not. <laughs> you like that one, huh? <laughs> that is not, that is not Christianity. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to even say that it's better than nothing because I don't think it is. I mean, like, he wants all of you, all that you are. Like, if you want to live 
like that. You must keep the gospel at the forefront of everything that we are. The way we think, speak, move, have our being, all things must be filtered through the gospel. We cannot move on from the gospel. Um, J.I. Packer writes, we never move on from the gospel. We move on in the gospel. He says, we never get to a point where we can cease to thank God for Calvary on a day-to-day basis and humble ourselves before him as hell-deserving sinners. And that is not a focus on sin. That is a focus on Christ. And Paul House also writes, I strive not to minimize sin in part because, listen to this, this is such a good quote, I strive not to minimize sin in part because I honor God's sacrificial plan for removing it. That is such a cool quote. I'll read it again. I strive not to minimize sin in part because I honor God's sacrificial plan for removing it. When we minimize our sin, we minimize the importance of the sacrifice. We don't minimize our sin. We stand victorious in it as it stands full. You are full of that sin, but you have victory over it in Christ. So we don't dwell on it, but we also don't minimize it. Because when we minimize it, we minimize Christ's sacrifice. And the goal is to look at the sin and then look at the sacrifice. And when we do, you get joy. And joy is the spark of a healthy, vibrant Christian life. That's it. That's what you need. Joy. Joy in Christ. And if you don't have joy in Christ, it starts with the cross. If you don't have joy in Christ, it starts with being broken and humbled and destroyed at the feet of Jesus hanging on a cross. That's where you need to go. That's where you need to go today. Do not waste an hour. You're not promised tomorrow. Do not waste a moment. Go there today. If you are not living a vibrant, healthy, Christ-centered, God-glorifying, Jesus-loving, joy-saturated praise-filled Christian life, then you are wasting your life and you need to go to the cross today and be humbled and broken and destroyed at the cross and let God just say, that is who you are. Now let me show you the power of my love and my grace and my mercy to turn that brokenness into life so that you would be filled with joy and live your life in joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you because you are good and we do not deserve you and yet you give us joy in Christ. You suffered in our place. Jesus, we deserve the cross. Bring us to our knees. Humble us. Break us down. Don't let us, don't let us sit there too long, God. If, if we sit there and stare at our sin for too long, we start to feel things that are not healthy for us. So put us at the feet of your cross. Help us to see the full nature of our wickedness and then show us the power of Christ to pay for it. So that we would rise in Christ's likeness and live in his righteousness. Help us to be vibrant, joy-filled believers so that we could spread your gospel to others but also so that we could bring honor and glory to you. Satisfy our hearts in your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.